Welcome back to a brand new episode of No Truths Barred, the best up-and-coming podcast on the internet. And I'm your host, Hoikaweku Timmons. And if you are not doing so already, make sure you're following me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hoyt, H-O-Y-T, underscore Kweku, K-W-A-K-U, underscore Timmons, that's T-I-M-M-O-N-S. And I want to thank everybody that has supported me over the duration of this particular podcast. I, I am thankful for all of the positive feedback. Anybody who's decided to click a like button, anybody who's decided to share a piece of content, anybody who say, hey, I like your flyer, I want to share it, any and all feedback, I definitely, definitely appreciate it because you did not have to do it. You did not have to take time out of your schedule or your plans or your leisure to provide me some sort of feedback. So I do not take it for granted and I'm deeply, deeply appreciative. And also make sure you're following me, following my new page on Instagram. It's underscore to the left. So it's underscore no truce barred all the way across all lowercase, no spaces. This is my new page on Instagram and coming at the end of this month, I will start to kind of segue into that, becoming my main page, at least um, as it relates to this particular podcast and this platform, because I have a lot of great interviews coming up. I have a lot of great content coming up and a few other things I want to do with my, my platform to kind of break up the monotony, add a little bit of creativity and things that you really didn't anticipate me showing you guys and presenting to the world. So make sure you're following my new page as well. Not a lot of followers at the moment, but please make sure you're following that page because uh, I'm definitely looking forward to doing a lot of great things on there. And also, if you've missed any, and remember, tonight's episode is actually episode 54. That sounds crazy to me that uh, I'm on, on 54 episodes. But if you've missed any of the previous 53 episodes, all of those episodes are available on SoundCloud on Spotify, on Stitcher, and on Google Podcasts. And I still have not done it yet. Listen, I know everybody's upset at me or everybody's like, hey, man, every podcast you talk about getting your episodes on the iTunes. And I'm definitely working on that. I apologize for the delay and being slow to get that done. But there are a few other things that have kind of taken precedence over actually getting this particular podcast over to iTunes. But rest assured, uh, if not this month, definitely January or at the latest February. Pardon me. Uh, sorry. I had to take a water. But definitely at the latest uh, January or February, I will be putting episodes of No Truths Barred on the iTunes and also uh, follow the YouTube channel as well. I'm definitely going to start to put the audios of these episodes onto the YouTube channel because I really want to start to build that following up on the YouTube channel as well. I think it's going to be really great. And thank all of the guests that have been on my platform so far. This has been a great year for the podcast. This month, I anticipate my, my schedule is a little bit more hectic. I had a few unforeseen things pop up. So this month, I may only get you guys maybe two at the most, possibly three episodes. 
I really plan to pick up the pace going into 2021. So definitely keep your eye out. This is episode 54. Now, without further ado, let's jump into it. What I'm about to talk about tonight is something very pertinent to me and germane to a perspective I've started to cultivate over the years after being exposed to the work of different anthropologists, after being exposed to the work of different sociologists, I started to have a, a paradigm shift, if you will, and how I view relationships and how I view the concepts of <clears throat> man and woman, that duality, and how we interact and relate, and the concept of marriage and love, at least love in the romantic sense. And I want to do this particular episode tonight, and this I, I, I decided to title, and I know some people might think this is corny, I don't care. But anyway, I decided to title this particular episode, Monogamy Conundrum. Monogamy conundrum. Exactly what is the conundrum? What am I trying to argue? So tonight, I'm actually trying to argue various points. What I want to put out there is that the concept of love that we currently ha have in 2020, the concept of love that we currently have in 2020 essentially is predicated off of the ideologies of religion, the ideologies of various societies, and the ideologies of, of, of patriarchy, if you will. Now, here's the caveat. I am not trying to be one of those people where I'm trying to tear down the patriarchy and enhance the matriarchy, if you will. That's really not the impetus of why I'm actually doing this particular episode tonight. What I want to do is I want to get you to think about the way that you view love. I want to get you to think about the way that you view relationships. If anything, and with every single episode I've ever done with No Truths Barred, the impetus is for me to be the catalyst for you to begin to think differently. I don't want to control thoughts. I just want to introduce thoughts. It's the difference. I also wanted to do this particular episode is because many of us were caught into these caustic, toxic cycles of romantic love. And we, don't re and we really don't know how to remedy what our parents and churches have told us about relationships and have told us about how these unions are supposed to last. We keep falling into these traps. And when we fall into these traps, we end up back in heartbreak, back in psychological and emotional trauma, back into self-doubt, low self-esteem. Because the template for what a successful relationship so-called is, it has been laid out for us by parties who don't necessarily have our best interests in mind. And really their interest is to kind of have us be these uh, automatons of 
religion and capitalism or socialism or any sort of ism that you can think of. And now, like I said, I'm not trying to tear those particular ways of thinking down because let me say this. I'm definitely not an atheist. I'm no, nor am I an anarchist. But what I am is a person that truly wants people to begin to question and think about society around them in a critical manner. That's what that's exactly what I am. Now, I want to I'm a person with a, a, a background in certain types of history. I'm a person with a background uh, not officially, like I said, I'm not, I don't have a PhD and <clears throat> I haven't been classically trained in anthropology or anything of that nature or, or any, any one of those particular disciplines. But I feel with my, with my platform, there's a certain onus on me to not only present my argument, but I also congruently with my argument, I have to actually present you with a few information, a, a few, a few pieces of information. So in conjunction with my argument, which I think is a rather astute and an eye-opening argument, congruently with that, I have to provide you with information. Because I don't believe in just putting out empty rhetoric. I want to give you a foundation. I want to give you something to stand on. People are listening. Did he just growl? Yes, I did. I let out a DMX growl in the middle of my podcast. How got have to have a little bit of levity. So what have we been told? We've been told about unconditional love. We've been told that we are supposed man, woman, to meet one man, one woman, and you're with that person for the rest of your life. And that's marriage. And this leads to the nuclear family. Well, what is love? Unconditional love. The Greeks or the Hellenists, because the term Greek actually comes from Graci, and it was a term that the Latins or the Romans used to refer to the Greeks or the Hellenists, excuse me. We just, it's not exactly sure where that term comes from in Latin, like the origins of it, the, the true origin of the etymology of that particular word. But the Hellenists or the Greeks had a term called pragma, pragma, the pragma love, the committed love. The love where you're dedicated to another human being. But did that love, that concept of pragma, did that involve the the naivete the encouraged naivete of unconditional or romantic love that we have now no it did not the greeks has several different forms of looking at love what about marriage well that leads me into another point actually I did a disservice. Before I get deeper into this particular episode, and I'm not going to hold you guys too long. I, I know the previous episodes have been a little bit longer than normal. So I kind of want to get to the point and, and let you guys go. But my primary argument is this. This is my argument in a nutshell. Because whenever you're presenting information, you should have a pragmatic argument. 
And my argument is this. My argument is that the word natural is often, more often than not, used in the wrong context. And what I want to what I want to convey through this very brief yet hopefully informative podcast is the modality in which we conduct marriage, in which we conduct relationships, in which we engage in coitus or sex. All of these things are germane to a society that fits our way of life and is not necessarily the natural state of being. And what I want you to take away from this particular episode is that human beings, we're extremely malleable. We don't have a fixed, ossified way of producing progeny or or perpetuating our genetics. It varies so much. What I try to fight against is the static way of looking at relationships, the static way of looking at the world, the static way of looking at how man and woman should relate to one another. And what I want you to take away Hopefully, based upon my argument, based upon the little bit of evidence that I provide to you, that the way we live now, in our current epoch, 2020, is just but one way to do it. Not the way, not the barometer, but it's just one option to do it. So that's my argument. So with that being said, let's get into marriage. So if you if you have a conversation with anybody right now, it could be your friend. It could be your spouse. It could be a sibling. It could be your parents. It could be a colleague. If you have a conversation with anyone about marriage now, primarily they said that marriage is predicated upon love. Hmm. Interesting. The earliest dates that we have for marriage goes back to around 2360, 2340 BCE to Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia, that name means the land between two rivers, which is modern day Iraq, the land of Sumer, the Sumerians, or Shumer, the land of the Chaldeans. This is where Abraham in the Bible comes from. And matter of fact, cool point, the term Hebrew actually relates to a verb, and it relates to Abraham when he crossed the Tigris uh, Euphrates uh, River, and it means boundary crosser. It comes from a term called Ebri, and it means Ebri or Hebrew, and it means uh, boundary crosser. Just a little fun fact I wanted to toss out there to you. <laughs> But when you look at marriage in early Mesopotamia, when you look at marriage in uh, early agrarian societies, marriage actually had very little to do with romantic love. Marriage had very little to do with who you were, who you got the butterflies from, who who made you just release these endogenous amounts of, of dopamine and, 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 and serotonin. No, it actually was not about that at all. You have to remember that 
where we're at now as a society or as a as a species, actually, I should say where we're at now as a species is totally based upon the agricultural revolution. When you get into sexism, classism, eventually what will come way later on, racism, all of these are products of agricultural societies. You do not see them in the hunter-gatherer world where most live in small bands of anywhere between 90 to 150 people. Those sort of concepts in that hierarchy just doesn't exist. Hunter-gatherer societies predate patriarchy, matriarchy in the, in the few rare, rare instances that we see it throughout history. You're talking about societies that practice fierce egalitarianism. That's what you're talking about. So we have to look at the fact that currently everything that we have is a, a, a <clears throat> post-agricultural. The concept of ownership in land is all post-agricultural. Now, this is very important because it ties into the way we view marriage and relationships. At least as people in post-agricultural revolution societies, agrarian societies, and it's going to it's going to become a lot more intricate because you could go from, let's say, one society like the Alemanni, and the Alemanni is essentially the Germans, the ancient Germans, these different tribes that would have constituted what would have become the, the Germans. You compare that society to the society of the Ottomans way later on, <laughs> way later on. You compare that to Wagadu or ancient Ghana in Africa. So um, what I'm saying is that from the seed of the agricultural revolution, which actually occurred differently in the Levant, in Africa, um, and in Europe versus the Western Hemisphere. Because, you know, when you look at the, the agricultural revolution in, in the Levant, in the, the Fertile Crescent, um, uh, parts of Africa as well, it was way different because they had far more animals to domesticate. And one of the consequences of domesticating animals is that you have instances where really complex variables align and they allow zoonosis to happen, in which case viruses that were carried by animals can actually make that jump from animal to human being which ties into viruses, and that's a whole different topic for a whole different podcast. So everything we have and everything we've been taught is all based upon being on the agricultural side of the dichotomy of how marriage and life and relationships and sex, et cetera, should be lived. It falls on that particular side of it. Are you following me? <laughs> so then the question becomes, why was what was the initial purpose of marriage? Okay. I mentioned ag I mentioned the agricultural revolution because 
when you start to get into these small settlements where you're acquiring wheat and barley and, and all of these different things, you have resources, you have things, you have food stockpile, you have the more the intake of more uh, complex carbohydrates. These are things you start to see in agricultural societies. And with that comes the concept of ownership and inheritance and who you're going to pass off your inheritance to or how you're going to acquire more resources. This is where marriage comes in. Marriage essentially was a means to build liaisons between families, one, to establish and promote and perpetuate more, more wealth, more um, acquiring of land and ownership. But also, marriage was to, cert to, to, to uh, solidify the fact that any sort of land, any sort of inheritance would go to the proper progeny and it would not go to children of the man of, excuse me, it would not go to children that didn't actually belong to that man. And essentially, it really kind of was designed to corner and regulate the uh, sexual proclivities of women, essentially. And, and I'm not saying that in a trying to be like a, a white knight or any, anything like that. But this is it's not really. Because I think sometimes in history, when we study history, we look for. We look for ways to justify a certain argument. And I don't want to say that it was done specifically for that. I think that more so was kind of a byproduct, a, a consequence more so. But that mar marriage in that particular context, it gets into ownership and inheritance and making sure that your ownership and inheritance and land goes directly to progeny that is yours. I want to I want you to remember a verse. And I bet you've heard this verse your whole life. You probably heard it your whole life and you never really thought about it. And actually I'm going to give credit where credit is due. One of my favorite scholars and authors, Dr. Chris Ryan he put this out in in one actually excuse me he didn't he didn't put it in a book i actually heard him say this on a podcast and he pointed this out and i'm going to say this verse and i want you to kind of think about it for a few seconds and think about everything i've been saying up until this particular point the verse is exodus 20:17 you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. That's Exodus 20, 17. Okay, I gave you a few seconds. The generic response or the generic uh, assessment of that particular verse to say, oh, well, you know, God is a saying, don't be jealous, don't be envious, which I'm not saying that that's not the case. 
But when you're reading these ancient writings, you always have to take into account the historical context. So Exodus 2017 is tying into the mentality of agriculture, the mentality of ownership, and those are your belongings. And you shouldn't covet the belongings of your neighbor. It's not just your neighbor's house. It's your neighbor's house that he owns. It's your neighbor's wife that he owns. It's your neighbor's male or female servant that he owns, his ox or donkey that he owns. That is the premise of it. And this is where we get to the point of marriage. Marriage is about ownership, passing off wealth, inheritance, and building upon family ties and uh, an empire. This is where we originally get marriage from. This is why where you barter, you give a certain amount of of of, of donkeys or livestock, etc., for this man's daughter's hand in marriage because this daughter can also now connect that man to this powerful tribe or family over here. Women kind of got a shitty deal for a long time with marriage. I stated that <clears throat> this was a way to ensure a woman's fidelity. But the man's fidelity was never into called into question. And often, like I said, because the whole concept of romance and romantic love being a, 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 a antecedent of marriage is a relatively novel concept. If you go back for the majority of our time spent in agriculture, which some people will say the, the nascence of the agricultural revolution occurred concurrently in different places, circa 11,500 BCE, so around about 13,000 years ago. So for the bulk of this time, marriage primarily was did not have anything to do with romantic love. Now, once again, let me go back to my primary argument. The reason why I'm pointing this out, I want you to understand how things evolve. I want you to understand that nothing is static. I want you to understand that because we have such a short lifespan and we can't really, we don't really look at things as human beings in terms of development, just because you don't look at things in the term in the, in the from the perspective of development, doesn't mean that it didn't develop and evolve and get to the particular point. This is where marriage comes from, folks. Mm hmm. <laughs> but men, uh, husbands were allowed to have concubines. And if you get into Hellenistic culture, not only were they allowed to have concubines, but pederasty existed. And pederasty was essentially the act in which a man would engage in sexual relations with a young, a young man or in certain cases, a young boy. I'm not saying that you know, my 2020 view is that that's pretty sick, but that was uh, that was the time they lived in. Don't agree with it at all. 
but I'm just here to tell you history and various ways that people lived. So we really start to, we really start to get, um, we really start to get uh, marriage more so ossified, if you will, um, with the Council of Trent. So if you uh, have studied like any sort of religious history, you'll notice that throughout the, the, the tenure of Christianity, there have been many ecu, uh, ecu, ecumenical councils, essentially like world councils. And one of the most famous ones is the uh, Council of Nicaea, which was uh, 325 AD. That's one of the most, probably the most famous one that, you know, everybody and their mom wants to quote whenever they kind of have an argument against Christianity. But, you know, the, the Bible actually was, the New Testament was actually canonized in 367 AD. In Alexandria under um, a monk, I believe, by the name of Athanasius. But the Council of Trent issued decrees on marriage, um, which emphasized excellence of celibacy. It also condemned concubinage, which is kind of different because, like I said, for the longest time, men were allowed to do that. It also introduced the concept of marriage taking place before a priest. And also in the case of divorce, uh, the right of the innocent party to marry again was also denied. As long as the other party was alive. And this was a huge step via organized religion to, from my perspective, to inculcate the permanence of marriage. That's where that's what it seems like to me. So then you have to ask, well, where does this concept of romantic love come in? Because whenever you have a conversation with anyone right now, whenever you're meeting people that are single, people that are actively looking for relationships, one of the things that they will often say is that, well, I need romance. I need that spark. I need to feel something. And it's, and it's definitely an intangible, it's a, a enigmatic thing that we really can't describe, but we know how it feels. But there's a scientific reason behind it I'm going to get to a little bit later on in this marvelous podcast. I said I was only going to keep you guys for 30 minutes and I'm almost over. Well, I am over 30 at the moment. So I'm going to hurry, 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 hurry and wrap this up. Oh, pardon me. But the concept of romantic love, truly, if you want to look at the, 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 the origins, at least is how we know it and how we understand it. You want to look at France especially like Southern France, um, you know, close to the Pyrenees, 
around the 11th and 12th centuries. And what you had were the concepts of, uh, of romanticizing the infatuation stage of love. And the troubadour poets, they really, these poets in France, they really perpetuated the idea of courtly love. The spark, the infatuation, the connection, the chemistry. Well, chemistry is right. You know that when you're in love with someone, the same areas of your brain activate that activate when you're on cocaine. But then that same argument can be made for sugar, too. You know, sugar is the most addictive, the most addictive drug on the planet, and it kills the most people on the planet as well. But that's a, a different discussion. It is chemistry. It's your hypothalamus. Remember, your hypothalamus is the place that stimulates the production of sex hormones. What are those? Testosterone and estrogen. You know, hormones are just those good old chemical messengers. And I well, funny enough, testosterone, if you will, in men they they they're produced via and uh, androgens. Excuse me. And it, women actually have the the women actually can and they do uh, secrete a form of uh, testosterone and estrogen um, in uh, through their ovaries. What's another chemical? Oxytocin, the bonding chemical. Dopamine, the feel good chemical. Serotonin. Uh, see, all of these different chemicals are involved in how we connect as man and woman. All of these different chemicals, they connect. So where we're infatuation and love and 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 I I have I I feel like I can't live without that person. Because your brain, our biology, is pushing us to procreate. You feel those things like, for example, you ever meet somebody and you meet that person and you just can't get them off of your mind and they're all that you think about? It's the reason for that. The reason for that is because in a short window, you're supposed to engage in coitus and you're supposed to uh, impregnate that particular woman. When we evolved as Homo sapiens around about 250,000 to 200,000 years ago, actually, uh, another side fact I believe I read an article a few months ago where a, uh, a, a skull was found in Morocco that could be a Homo sapiens skull that actually goes back 300,000 years. But I think some more evidence has to be brought in on that. But that's what these chemicals are for. They're here to guide us to procreate. They're here to make us 
want to produce more of ourselves. And within uh, an amalgamation of all of those feelings going on, we start to make that feeling synonymous with love. Once again, I'm going to quote Chris, Chris Ryan, and he said this. He said that love, true love, is what's left after the feeling of being in love has burned away. I love that quote. Love, true love, is what's left after the feeling of being in love has burned away. Beautiful quote. It truly is. Another sip of water. <clears throat> so then you have to ask, well, we have these feelings. You're talking about all of these different uh, chemicals and neurotransmitters and whatnot and hormones and all of this stuff that make us feel a certain way. So, But, but why? Hmm. What's the point? Why do we feel this way? Why are we trapped in the Maya of chasing this high of being in love with somebody. Well, there's a few answers. The German evolutionary biologist, August Weisman, 1868, not 1866, excuse me, 1886, he believed that what reproduction really does is that <clears throat> It kind of reshuffles genes, if you will. And through that, uh, individual differences and selection acts, it allows the opportunity for two organisms within the same species to pool their genetic resources. And one of the things, like if you look at, for example, if you look at bacteria and if you look at plants, a lot of times they produce through binary fission or asexual reproduction. The problem with asexual reproduction is that it can be effective and not as it, it, it can it can be effective, especially with, with plant life. But the problem, if that was to happen in humans, is that you could kind of allow a lot of negative the negative gene, genetic, pardon me, negative genetic mutations to pile up and it'll be harmful for the species. So what sexual reproduction does is that it, it allows far more genetic diversity, far more advantageous genetic mutations. Because a lot of times we hear the word mutation and we put it in the wrong context. The way we look at mutation in everyday life versus when you say genetic mutation is, is very different. A genetic mutation can actually be beneficial depending on how, how that particular adaptation uh, mixes in with that environment. And that's what it is. Our bodies are vehicles. Like your gut, like for example, your gut biome has billions, maybe even trillions of neurotransmitters. That's what your gut biome has. 
we're controlled by we're controlled have living in us and on us bacteria many many genes many many microorganisms and what these bodies that we happen to inhabit are they are these bodies are are automatons they're vehicles to push seeds and push genes that can help replenish the earth like essentially i think we evolved to be kind of like uh not <laughs> I don't want to say this in a linear sense, but I think our evolution has to do with us being able to find more complex ways to spread genetics and seeds that can benefit plants. Because when we die, we go right back to them. I almost think that the plants created us just to eat us. They created better food for themselves, I feel, at times. I know that's a crazy idea, but that's just kind of how I feel when I look at how we evolved and what we do with ourselves and how we're slaves to our genetics. And we are, we think we have free will, but we really don't. We capitulate to sexual desires. We capitulate to uh, our ego. We capitulate to, to our mentality and, and various other things that if, if they're not beyond our control, essentially they're a tapestry of socialization and genes. We don't we don't have domain over nature. We're slaves to it. That's the thing that, that, that has messed us up. And the primates, they seem to have got it right. If you look at, I always encourage people because you notice whenever anybody, like for example, if you get a chance you might want to check out Thomas Malthus' work. Definitely check his out. I would say check check out. I would check definitely check out Charles Darwin. Definitely. But I, I've started to notice over the years that whenever they would begin to talk about or compare us to another primate, because don't get it twisted, human beings we are primates. We're apes. We're animals. We don't like to look at ourselves that way, but we're apes. We're animals. We didn't just because if you really we have just as much hair as a chimpanzee does. Maybe not that much, but we have a lot of our hair is just really, 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 really fine. And our 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 hands are a lot more fragile. And we have far, you know, we have way smaller digestional tracts. And cooking meat actually allowed us to conserve energy that would have been used digesting food and use it for brain growth. Like if you look at Homo sapiens, our prefrontal cortex is 6%, 6% larger than any other primates. But nonetheless, we are primates. And like I said, whenever the, the media wants to ju justify the nefarious side of human nature, they always go to chimpanzees. And rightfully so. Chimpanzees engage in hierarchy. Chimpanzees engage in war. Chimpanzees kill each other. 
they snap the necks of monkeys and eat them. Yeah. And then uh, I saw another article last year that was saying that uh, chimpanzees, chimpanzees were actually entering their own version of a stone age. Like they know how to use weapons and hunt and catch fish. This has been observed. But there's also another option to look at. The other option to look at would be bonobos who are just as close to us as chimpanzees. But why do I mention bonobos? Because if you study bonobos, bonobos don't neatly fit into the argument that we like to make as Westerners that we've always been violent, we've always been warlike, we've always been uh, predatory, we've always been territorial. Because if you look at bonobos, they challenge that idea. Now, yeah, bonobos do, you know, kill other animals and they do do some shitty things to a degree. But in juxtaposition with chimpanzees, bonobos are relatively peaceful. Nowhere near as violent as the chimpanzees. Now, I like to study the, the bonobos because we have this habit of castigating promiscuity. Now, living in 2020 with many, many viruses out here and many dangers, I do not encourage people to be promiscuous, nor am I downing people if they are promiscuous. That is your, to that is your choice. It is up to you. You are an adult. I have nothing to do with that. But here's something, here's an idea that Sarah, Sarah Hardy, Hardy, pardon me, an anthropologist she put out there. You look at chimps, you look at baboons, and there's a, a habit that if another alpha male comes and he tries to mate with another female and there's offspring or progeny there, that alpha male is going to kill the offspring. So one of the theories that she put forth is that the cause or one of the reasons for promiscuity, of course, in addition to pleasure, would be that if a female could engage in coitus with multiple males, this is what would happen. It will be a danger that the man would be killing his own offspring. Thus, it ensures the lifespan and the health of the offspring against a new alpha male. And it could make sense, very much so. But that concept that a man and a woman and you meet and you do not engage in sex with anyone else, that is an extremely Western concept. Because when you look at our primate relatives, you see that they have a much more hands-off approach when it comes to sex and monogamy. 
there is no marriage. I definitely love to, to, to read some of the writings of Columbus. I like the uh, the book that Bartholomew de las Casas that he put out about their time spent in the Indies or Hispaniola. And one of the things that they remarked about is that when they met the Arawak, the women moved freely. They would engage in sex with whomever they wanted to. They would leave one man freely and go to the other. They would have children and then uh, 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 within that same day or the next, they'll you know, get up and go back to, to, to working or doing whatever they needed to do. Somewhat, I guess, uh, culture, shock to, culture shock to Columbus and his band of, of merry thieves and murderers. That's how they lived. And it worked and they were happy. Another group I like to look at, if you look up, look these people up, they're called the Lucy of Papua New Guinea. And what they believe is that a fetus is an accumulation of various types of semen and that for a fetus to, to fully develop, that the woman when she, the woman needs to sleep with, with, with different men in order for that fetus to fully develop. And then another aspect of that is, is that the women, they will find certain aspects in different men that they will want to see in their child. And so they'll see a man that might be tall, a man that might be handsome, a guy that's brave, a guy that's uh, funny, and they will have sex with these different men to see those traits and those attributes in their children. And matter of fact, when a child is born, there's no word for father. It's they it's like a shared responsibility amongst the men to raise that particular child. But what we say about that in the West? Oh, that's how can they live like that? That's that's backwards. It's primitive. But like I said earlier in this episode, the way we live is just one way to live, not the way to live. And nor should we use ourselves as the barometer for culture, because I think that's deadly. And it allows xenophobia. When you try to use yourself as the barometer. But when you when you look at hunter-gatherer societies, one of the things you notice is that they practice fierce egalitarianism. So when you have a society and they practice fierce egalitarianism, essentially what it means is that you cannot, like an egomaniac will be ostracized, maybe even killed. You cannot have an e ego there's no room for a leader to rise. You can only get a leader in an agricultural society. In hunter-gatherer groups, that sort of mentality is shunned because the survival of the group is predicated upon everybody contributing equally and everybody sharing equally. 
because it's not an agricultural society. They don't have surplus food. So you cannot afford for a person to hoard. You cannot afford for a person to try to have dominance over others. Those things cannot be afforded in a hunter-gatherer society. And within that, sex, sex is a lot more fluid. It's nothing for women to take on multiple men, men to take on multiple women. And also, let me put this out there. When you're looking at a hunter-gatherer hunter group, you're also looking at Dunbar's number, which means a group to, I think, between 50 to 150 people would kind of classify or fall under the, the classification of a hunter-gatherer group. And within this group, you have really, really tight emotional bonds, really, really deep understanding of everyone in the group. And so when a woman is taking on, uh, or man, either one, if they're taking on sex with multiple men or women, they're doing this with people that they have an intimate knowledge of, people that they know deeply. Now, I'm not trying to say if you want to, if, if, if that they would not, not, they would not not have sex with someone that they didn't know. I'm not saying that, but we also have to put that in there. I think it's important to know that. It's extremely important to know. So I share some facts with you guys in a, in a, in a few pieces of information. And this is what I, I, I'm going to close this out with. When you look at the way we, we move and we operate as a society, I truly think that civilization and its nascence, I can understand it because it provided convenience. Farming, it provided convenience to, to stockpile food. But during the first thousand years of the agricultural revolution, the average height on the planet, well, in the places where those, uh, those different variants of the agricultural revolution happened, the average height dropped from about 5'10", 5'9", to about 5'4", because severe lack of nutritional value in those foods and agricultural societies. What else came from agriculture? You need labor. You need people to do that labor, to benefit a select few. Out of the advent of the agricultural revolution, everything we complain about today from slavery, to sexism and eventually racism would all come out of this decision of human beings to decide to engage in agriculture. That was the catalyst of that. Human beings wanted to engage in agriculture. What also came from that, like I said, sexism, the need because of property, because of inheritance, to relegate the sexual proclivities of women. And like I pointed out, when you look at different hunter-gatherer groups, that's not an issue.
And as I point out in the book of Exodus 2017, your woman is property, your ox, your house. And it's extremely hyper-masculine. And I'm saying, and, and listen, there's nothing wrong with being masculine. Nothing wrong at all. I'm just pointing out to you how we got to this point. And once again, like I said, this is a very brief and kind of like surface level analysis of this. We've been taught that everyone is supposed to meet somebody, marry and settle down and be with that person for the rest of their life. But yet we, we keep having abysmal results with this decision. And I truly believe that we keep having these abysmal results because possibly we're trying to fit ourselves into a way of having relationships that is quite alien to us as a species. Because for 95% of our time on this planet as homo sapiens, we would have lived. So we're talking about out of 200,000 years, only about 13 to 14,000 of those where we have been living in agriculture. And I don't think we've adjusted to this yet. I think that's why so many is so many uh, adverse effects is so much chaos is because I don't I truly think in this in in, in, in all honesty. Civilizations, societies are not meant for human happiness. They're meant for human beings to uplift the ideology of the society or the civilization and your own happiness is secondary. Whereas when you look at hunter-gatherer societies, they make their own personal happiness paramount and everything else is secondary. And they spend far less time working than we do. Maybe we need a return to the archaic in some form. We've become domesticated humans. We can never go back, I don't believe, and live a 100% hunter-gatherer lifestyle. But maybe we can do things, hopefully, that can affect the future as far as from a, 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 a perspective of, of, the, of climate, from a perspective of how we raise children, from the perspective of how men and women deal with one another. Hopefully, we can move in a direction that will be more centered around human happiness. Listen, this has been episode 54 of No Truce Bard. And this episode kind of went a little bit longer than I intended. But I want to thank you for checking out this episode. And make sure you're following me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Hoy, H-O-Y-T underscore Kuwaku, K-W-A-K-U underscore Timmons. That's T-I-M-M-O-N-S. And once again, I thank you for listening. And I, yeah, I thank you guys for listening. Got a little tongue tied at the end, but that's okay. But once again, thank y'all for listening. And I will holler at y'all next time. Peace.